I'm wondering this morning, how many of you have ever served on a jury before? If you've ever served on a jury, just slip your hand up. How many people have been on jury duty before? That's interesting. More than half, I think, in every service this weekend. I've never had the experience. I've always wanted to. <laughs> Especially a big criminal case. But it's never, just never worked out for me. I've been summoned two or three times through the years, but either I didn't make the cut or else I had to write a letter to the judge and ask to be excused because I had some legitimate reason for not being able to serve. And although I know it would probably be time-consuming and it might even be inconvenient, I just think it would be fascinating to watch the legal system at work up close and personal. Courtroom drama has always interested me. My idea of a close to a perfect Sunday years ago used to be when they had the Perry Mason reruns on to go home from church and Kayleen and I would pop up a big bowl of popcorn. Kids were in bed asleep and we'd watch Perry Mason. Folks, he never lost a case. <laughs> if you ever needed a defense attorney, Perry Mason is your guy. I think the reason I'd like to be on a jury sometime is I'd like to observe the witnesses as they're called on to testify. That's what furnishes the real drama in the courtroom, isn't it? When the witnesses are cross-examined. Have you ever thought about why it's necessary to have witnesses called? It's because that in the likelihood that a case goes to trial, the plaintiff or the defendant will often lie to make their case. So sworn witnesses are needed to either corroborate or to contradict the prosecution or the defense. And everything in the trial builds up to that climactic moment when the jury foreman reads the verdict. The judge says, have you reached a verdict? And the, the jury foreman stands and reads the, the verdict. Now this is the very thing that's happening in our text this morning. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, and this is where we'll be focused the next few minutes. In John chapter 5, Jesus makes three huge truth claims to a crowd that has grown to several thousand. The first truth claim is that He claimed to be equal with God. In John chapter 5, verse 18, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in John chapter 5, it was understood that Jesus was making himself equal with God. That's pretty huge. That's about as huge a truth claim as you can make. The second truth claim that Jesus made is found in verse 26. He claimed to be the source of all life. Jesus said it, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Jesus claimed to be the source of all life. We've come a long way with science. We believe the universe generated itself out of vast 
infinite nothingness. But Jesus said in John 5:26, the Father is the source of life. He's granted the Son to have life in himself. Pretty big claim. The third claim is found in verse 27. He claimed to be the judge of all mankind. And Jesus spoke of himself here in the third person. And here's what he says. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Pretty huge. Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the source of all life. He claims to be the judge of all mankind, right? Here in John chapter 5. And these truths, listen, these truths, if you believe them, will change everything about your life. So now the question is, were there at least two valid witnesses to support these almost unbelievable claims? Claims that are made by Jesus, about Jesus, and they're still the most disputed claims about Jesus yet to this very day. Under Jewish law, there had to be two validating witnesses. And because his deity is disputed by his adversaries, Jesus referenced no less than six authenticating witnesses to support his testimony. So here we have these big truths claimed by Jesus about his power and authority as God's Son, followed by the introduction of six corroborating witnesses. Now, that's three times the number that were required. Under Jewish law, two were required, and Jesus provides six, and he starts with himself. And we see it in verse 31, the witness of Jesus. He said, if I testify, testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Jesus is saying that if only he testified about himself, that his testimony alone would not be valid in their eyes. So what exactly did Jesus say about himself? I'm interested in that. Well, he plainly said he was God. He was the I Am. Now, this is the name of God that was revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He stood in front of a bush that was burning but not being consumed. He was called to lead the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. And he said, who shall I say has sent me? And, and the response from God, tell them, I am has sent you. I am is Yahweh in the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, it means I always have been. I am. I always will be. So then Jesus came along and he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep to enter in. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Seven times he said, I am. But maybe the most direct and succinct statement by Jesus about his deity is in John 10, verse 30. There is no misunderstanding this. I, he said, I and the Father are one. He is the self-existent one. As God, his existence does not depend on anyone or anything else. That's what Jesus said about himself. That's his testimony about himself. 
But the Jews would insist that there be other trustworthy witnesses, so Jesus also references the witness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, Jesus said, There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Now, when Jesus spoke about another, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And the witness of the Holy Spirit is very compelling. He's the one who is the source of the subjective internal witness about who Jesus is. That conviction that you develop in your heart when you hear about the character of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that testifies He is the one. You need to be forgiven, to have life in you. Listen, it is possible to close your heart to the Spirit's inner conviction about your need for Jesus as your Savior, but it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of effort throughout your life to resist His persistent and His gentle prompting. A couple of passages here, John 14, 26, Jesus said, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit does His work in us. He convicts us. Another passage will say of, He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. In short, He works on the conscience. And once He brings you to a place of inner surrender and submission, 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, Therefore I tell you no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So if you let Him, the Holy Spirit will teach you. He will lead you. He will convict you. He'll bring you to faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord of your life. But look at the next witness, the witness of John the Baptist. In verse 33, Jesus said, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. So what did John say about Jesus? Did he validate Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the Savior? Indeed, he did. John chapter 1, verse 29, verse 34 says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, the Jews loved and revered John the Baptist. The Jewish leaders did not like John the Baptist, but the Jewish people loved him. He was the first prophetic voice in Israel in 400 years. So Jesus invoked the name of John the Baptist as his human witness. John the Baptist who preceded Jesus, who identified Jesus, who introduced Jesus, who baptized Jesus, who worked with Jesus, who directed his own followers to become disciples of Jesus. John the Baptist, who said, he must increase and I must decrease. So there's the word of Jesus about himself. There is the testimony of the Holy Spirit, there is the witness of John the Baptist, the most trusted prophet in history. And Jesus said that he's referencing John's testimony so they might be saved. You see, Jesus knew that perhaps more than anything else, certainly more than anyone else, John's endorsement would influence them most to put their faith in him. 
Do you see how desperately that Jesus was reaching out to these people to bring them to himself? Well, then there's the witness of mighty works or miracles. Moving through the text, look at verse 36. Jesus said, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And these people had witnessed many of the signs and wonders Jesus had performed. And these are not magician tricks. No question, they were genuine miracles. And Jesus' mighty works were prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 35, 5, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And these things happen. But Jesus didn't do these miracles to attract a crowd. He didn't do these miracles to collect offerings. He didn't do these miracles to make people believe in him. He didn't do these miracles even to relieve human suffering, he did these miracles to bear witness to the fact that he is God. Jesus' miracles were an undeniable demonstration of his deity. You move down through the Gospel of John, there are seven detailed miracles in John's Gospel. The first miracle is when Jesus turned the water into wine. It's in John chapter 2. And it shows that Jesus came to deliver us from the emptiness of man-made religion into a fulfilling relationship with him. And he demonstrated it at a joyful wedding celebration that foreshadows the one that we will all experience one day. (laughs) Miracle 2, the healing of the official son in John 4. And Jesus said on that occasion... Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. And the official shows us that we're saved by grace through an obedient faith. He came to Jesus and said, my servant is dying, my son rather, is dying at home. And Jesus said to him, go home. Your son will live. He did. And he did. Miracle 3, healing at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5 shows us a crippled man who couldn't get to the pool to be healed on his own. And just like the infirm man needed someone to help him and heal him, we need Jesus to save us. We cannot save ourselves. Miracle 4, the feeding of the 5,000, John chapter 6, we learn that we who believe in Jesus will never again feel the futility of searching for something to satisfy our hungry souls, something more than just having our physical needs met. Miracle 5, Jesus walking on the water. John 6, when the disciples realized it was Jesus in the storm, they led him into their boat, and immediately there was peace. And ultimately, they reached their destination safely without him. They struggled, but with him in their boat, they had peace. They were secure. They arrived safely at home. Miracle 6, the healing of the man born blind. John chapter 9. No one ever healed a man who had been blind from birth. But Jesus is like no other. He came so the blind would see. He can cause even the lowliest person to see and believe. Miracle 7, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, Jesus called 
his friend out of the grave and delivered him from death to life. And Jesus will do this for all of us who are his friends at the end of our lives or on the very last day. He said, whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me, he said, will never die. And then he asked this question. Do you believe this? That's really the issue, isn't it? Do you believe this? Folks, that's a yes or no question. That's a straight up or straight down verdict. And our verdict about him will be the verdict that will determine whether we are declared innocent or found guilty. Here's the bottom line. Jesus performed many signs that were not documented, but these are written down for us, John said, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we would have life in his name. Okay. Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist, Jesus' mighty works, the miracles. Are there other sources that testify to his deity? Indeed, there are. Two more. And the next is the witness of God the Father. That's in verse 37. Jesus said, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. And God the Father did bear witness concerning Jesus the Son three times when he spoke directly. At Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And at the triumphal entry in John 12, 28, Jesus publicly declared his commitment to die on the cross, saying, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And on each of these three occasions, there were mortal eyewitnesses, or maybe I should say mortal ear witnesses, to validate that God spoke in an audible voice testifying to the deity of Jesus. And did you know there are only 15 references to the fatherhood of God in the entire Old Testament? But no less than 165 times in the four Gospels, Jesus addressed God as his Father. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself as a Father, but he is not addressed as Father until Jesus. Peter was so right in his good confession. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to build my church upon the rock of this undeniable fact that I am the Son of the living God. And he said, the gates of death, the gates of hell will not prevail against that reality. And it's true. The gates of death could not contain him could not confine him, could not imprison him, could not prevail against him. He broke down the gates. And friends, praise God when he did, he made it possible for us to be set free to. One final witness is called to the stand. The witness 
of the Word. Verses 39 and 40, verses 46 and 47, Jesus said, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? See, if anyone knew the Old Testament Scriptures backwards and forwards, it was these people. They were experts in the law of Moses. They prided themselves in knowing every jot and tittle, and they thought if they kept the rules, they were owed eternal life. They thought if they could be good enough, they could earn God's favor. You see, they knew the text of the Bible, but they didn't know the God of the Bible. If they had known and loved God, which is the point of the text of the Old Testament. If they had known and loved God, they would have recognized and received His Son standing before them. Because from cover to cover, the Scriptures testify about Jesus. You remember 40 different authors writing from three different continents in three different languages over 1,600 years, one unifying message about someone. The whole Bible is about someone. In the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, the message is someone is coming. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. It's going to happen. Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, someone is coming who's going to turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children and turn the hearts of the children toward their fathers. Someone is coming. And then in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all testify, someone came. And so in the Gospels, you have the account of the birth, life, and ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then in the rest of the New Testament, from Acts 1 to Revelation 22, there is the testimony, someone is coming again. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are standing on the Mount of Ascension, and they're told, Jesus, whom you've seen ascend, will one day Descend in the same manner as you've seen him go. He will come again. And then Revelation closes in chapter 22, verse 20, with the words of Jesus, I am coming soon. And John's testimony, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The whole Bible is about someone. Someone is coming. Someone came. Someone is coming again. Friends, there are people out there who know the Bible. Some of them are scholars, and they know every historical and textual detail. And they still don't believe it, and they don't obey it as the word of truth and life because they have not come to worship God and love Jesus through the study of it. And that's what the Bible is for. Bring us to the place that we'll worship God and love Jesus. Jesus Christ. But see, salvation is not a matter of what you know. It is a matter of whom you know. And when you boil the message of Scripture down, it only points to one thing. 
the Bible always and only points to Jesus. And Jesus testified in his own behalf, but he told the Jewish leaders he knew that wasn't enough for them, so he called out his witnesses, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of the miracles, the testimony of God the Father, and the final timeless testimony of Scripture. And each one of them is credible. But all of them together, are you kidding? Absolutely irrefutable, absolutely indisputable. So, what is it that might keep a person from accepting Jesus as God? What might be keeping you from making Jesus the Lord of your life? The Jews rejected the testimony of Jesus, and they rejected the witnesses he provided, and they preferred to order their lives by some things that are revealed in the text of John 5. They chose to order their lives by self-wisdom, self-generated wisdom, Jesus said, you think. They weren't concerned about what God has said. They were concerned about what they think. How many times do you hear people say, well, I think. Self-love, verse 42, Jesus said, you do not have the love of God in your hearts. And I guarantee you, if you don't have the love of God in your hearts, what you have in place of it is self-love. They lived with self-promotion. That's what you're stuck with. You pass on Jesus, self-promotion. Verse 43, Jesus said, if someone comes in his own name, you will accept him. Or self-pride. Jesus said, verse 44, you accept praise from one another. You don't give praise to him, but you accept praise from one another. If he comes in his own name, you won't accept him. But if someone else comes in their own name, you'll accept him. You see, it's self-wisdom, self-love, self-promotion, self-pride in this text. That's what you're stuck with. That's what is left for you if you pass on Jesus. If you say, he is not God, I will not receive him as Savior and Lord. Okay, then here's what you've got to live with. Your self-generated wisdom, your self-love, your self-promotion, your self-pride. Well, friends, there's a, this is a series of messages on the Word, and there's been a lot of the Word in this message, and I don't apologize for that, of course. I never think you can load a Bible up with too much, uh, a message up with too much Bible. But I can't close without referencing one final passage from the book of John. It's John chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. This kind of pulls it all together, nails it down. He... That is, Jesus was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You see, many have the opportunity today to hear the witness of Scripture that reveals Jesus, that testifies about Jesus, and yet they do not recognize Him, and they will not receive Him. And here's the thing. The verdict they render about Him is the one that they'll live with at the end of their life or at the end of time. 
this lack of recognition and then the rejection of Jesus becomes like their own eternal death sentence. And what it all comes down to in any courtroom is this climactic moment when the judge says to the jury foreman, have you reached the verdict? And the jury foreman stands up. And it all comes down to that moment when the jury foreman announces the verdict. And for each of us, it all comes down to the same climactic moment. When we render a verdict, our verdict about Jesus, with the understanding that it will become our own verdict. You see, the most exhilarating words that any of us will ever hear will come from the mouth of Jesus. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And the most devastating words anyone could ever hear are these from Jesus. I tell you the truth. I don't know you. You never let me know you. Depart from me. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, Father God, we've been on holy ground today. I've sensed it in this room, in our worship, in the passage of Scripture that we've studied together. And Lord, I know we haven't gotten everything out of it that's there, but we've got enough. We've touched the hem of the garment, and it's been enough to cleanse us of all the false ideas about who Jesus is and why he came, how he saves. And we thank you, Father, that in these moments we can reaffirm our faith. We can hear Jesus asking Peter, who do you say that I am? We can give the right answer. Thank you for the witness of Scripture. We embrace it today. In Jesus' name, amen.